When one person in a family has a mental illness, that illness is not contained in that one person. It radiates, it affects everyone. Everybody has to live in response to that illness. Sometimes they manage it effectively, sometimes not so much. It varies a lot, but there's always a response. Mental illness in a family is a shared experience. Now, I've been doing podcasts about mental health for a while now, including this one. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. And ever since I started talking about mental health, listeners have been asking me to do some interviews about what it's like for everyone else in a family where one person is experiencing mental health troubles. People who might not have the same mental illness as their family members, but need to manage around it anyway. Do a story on that, people always tell me. And I want to give those listeners what they want, but getting guests for a show like that is surprisingly difficult. People are willing to come on the show to talk about themselves, but they tend to be a lot more reticent, a lot more protective when it comes to talking about living with the mental illness of a parent, a child, a sibling, a spouse. That's why I was so glad to talk to Liz Shire, author of Never Simple. It's a memoir of life with her mother who dealt with borderline personality disorder. And let's pull up the Mayo Clinic definition of borderline personality disorder here real quick. Quoting now, borderline personality disorder is a mental health disorder that impacts the way you think and feel about yourself and others, causing problems functioning in everyday life. It includes self-image issues, difficulty managing emotions and behavior, and a pattern of unstable relationships. With borderline personality disorder, you have an intense fear of abandonment or instability, and you may have difficulty tolerating being alone. Yet inappropriate anger, impulsiveness, and frequent mood swings may push others away, even though you want to have loving and lasting relationships. Unquote. Here's my interview with Liz Shire. So I grew up in Manhattan in New York City, and whatever you're envisioning when you hear that, it's not that. This was not Gossip Girl. It was not uh, Sex and the City. This is an 80s childhood in a very middle-class Yorkville, New York. And I had this sort of magical but very weird childhood because my mother um, w was living in this very strange situation, which I did not know was strange at the time. She had been a lawyer. She was one of the. She was a lawyer at a time when it was unusual for women to be lawyers in the U.S. She started in, I think, the early 60s. But she did not work by the time I was born, and I didn't know why. She had told me she was retired, and when I was five, that made sense. It wasn't until I was older that I thought, people in their late 30s generally do not retire. Like, that's not a usual time period for that to happen. I say from my 40s now, I can unfortunately say that that's true. <laughs> and so she was not what you might call a big rule follower. And so she was very big on, you know, if there was a good exhibit at the Met, I wasn't going to school. If it was a good sledding day in the Central Park, I wasn't going to school. Right? She just wanted to do whatever was was fun, essentially. But there was also a, a a darker side to it, because my mother was not able to control her rage in a way that I did not entirely understand as a child. So nine out of ten times, if I did something like leave a water glass in the sink, it went unnoticed. But the tenth time, she would fly into this inexplicable tornado of fury and like the spittle would be flying and her eyes would glow and it, it was just clear that there was no one driving the bus back there and so I you know I didn't talk about it because that's not an easy thing 
to explain externally, and I was too little to understand it. So uh, the two of us lived by ourselves in a one-bedroom apartment, very typical for New York at the time and, and still then. And most other kids I knew had a father somewhere, right? They, like, they didn't they hadn't mislaid them entirely, it seems. They might be <laughs> you know, divorced or living somewhere else, but they knew who they were and they knew where they were. And that was the thing that I thought really differentiated us as a, as a family unit. So my mother had told me this story that my father had been, during her pregnancy, driving a car and someone had come up behind him in a red light and he had stopped and the other driver hadn't and that he had died immediately. She had been in a storm of grief burned all his stuff, you know, burned all the photos. She had already returned the wedding dress she'd borrowed, right, all of these things. And as a child, I just thought that this was like a great tragic romantic story. And it wasn't until I was, you know, getting out to be a teenager that I thought, that is complete bullshit, <laughs> right? That is com- clearly, <laughs> clearly untrue. All evidence had somehow conveniently been destroyed. Yes, as if like a giant divine hand just dropped into the world and dripped him up. Right. Right. So, I mean, you have this unusual, atypical situation with your only parent's status in the world as, you know, as a strangely early retiree, you've had all this lack of evidence of a father. But for a kid, whatever they're living is is normal because they have nothing to compare it to. Did it strike you as like, okay, this isn't, there's something suspicious here. There's something under the surface. Because also, you know, with with a kid, like they, there's an implicit trust of the parent that that that's you know you're getting the truth. Definitely, and especially when there's only one grown up around, they're your only source of truth. So I yeah. think there's probably some very early self preservation in being the only kid of an only parent that way. Because if you can't trust them, you can't trust anyone. So at least at least in the early days, I absolutely took that as gospel. So then, what happens when you're 18? Yeah. So this one. Every time I tell the story, I hear this internal like, dun, dun, dun. So try to imagine that <laughs> as I talk. So I'm 18 years old and home for my first fall break from college. And I had told my mother that I was planning on getting a learner's permit. And so she came into the room in like one of her house dress moo situations, looking really nervous, was when, which was not her general milieu. So I knew something was off. And she said, so you told me you want to get a learner's permit, but you're not going to be able to do that. And I said, okay, why? And she said, well, you don't have a birth certificate. And I said, oh, that's fine. I'll just, uh, you know, I'll write to the Department of Vital Records and get a copy. And she said, no, 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 you're not listening. You don't have a birth certificate at all. I never filed for one. There's nothing to get a copy of. And I said, okay, why? And she said, well, I was married when you were born, but not to your father. And that conversation, those, you know, 15 or 20 minutes that spooled out from that confession, both cast, kind of kind of finally shed a light on what had been going on in our house for all those years, and also really drove home how many lies she had told. Because you can never tell just one lie, right? Especially when they're of that size. You have to prop it up with a hundred others. And so it really became clear to me in that discussion how much of our life was entirely constructed. And so then what was the truth? And, and did you learn the complete truth in that conversation? So I did not learn the, the complete truth, but I got a really good head start on it. So it turned out that for most of my life, my mother had already been married to a man I had never heard of, which was in and of itself a new, exciting fact. And the man she had told me was my dead father was completely made up. She had made up a name, made up a story, 
made up everything about him. So that was entirely fictional. So it turns out that there were some parts of my mother's life that I knew about that were true. She had married very young after college and ultimately amicably divorced. And there had been a second husband, but that wasn't my father. She had married a man named Merrill uh, not long after her divorce. And it turns out that after the wedding ceremony, they were driving back and he pulled the car over on the side of the road because the voices from the engine were speaking to him and he needed to placate them. So there were clearly some mental health issues unexplored at a, at play there. Uh, he was quite violent and very violent towards her. And ultimately she did kick him out. But they never divorced. And so she remained married until I was, I think, 15 or 16 when he died. So that was all startling because we lived in this very close-knit, very codependent world. And not knowing something giant like, for example, her marital status was really shocking to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is more of a practical question. How does one go about proving one's existence to the state at that point? <laughs> getting a birth certificate, like what, what happened then? Yeah, so I, uh, I, my beloved godfather, who is luckily a lawyer, went with me to the uh, department. You have to bring in a certain number of points if you don't have a birth certificate. A birth certificate is six points, or you can bring other documentation that adds up to six. It's like a video game. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I brought in you know, my school records and those kinds of things. And one of the items I had was my naming certificate from when I was an eight-day-old baby from the synagogue. And the woman looking at it was just completely flustered by this whole situation. She'd clearly never come across this before. And she said, I just don't know if I can accept this. I've never seen one. I mean, if it were a baptismal record. And my Ooh. lawyer <laughs> godfather said, so if she were Christian, she could have one? <laughs> and suddenly I got an expedited uh, learner's permit. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, it feels like a series of Kaiser Soze moments <laughs> from the usual suspects of realizations that, yes. oh, this isn't, this isn't normal after all. The, the normal that I had accepted, there's omens here of something much mm -hmm. greater and darker and, and more secretive. Like, is that starting to come together at that point? Yes. And so the the second thing that I found out in that conversation was that part of the reason she had kept the real story about my father from me is that he had not died in a car accident, he had killed himself, and that she did not actually know about the suicide until some time after he had died because she had she had not heard from him in a week. She called his apartment, and his then ex-wife picked up the phone and had to tell her that she had just come from the funeral. I was a somewhat troubled teenager. I had some... Uh, some periods of pretty severe depression. When I was 12 or 13, you know, suicide attempt, time in the hospital, etc. And so I think my mother just saw that repeating and saw her keeping the story from me as protection. Mm. As protection to so that you wouldn't know that you have like a, a genetic history towards depression? I guess I'm I'm not really sure what her chain of logic there was. I think she probably found it difficult when I was a small child to know how to tell that story. And I will say I now have a four and five-year-old. I'm not sure how you start that conversation. I know that because of my own history, I would do it because I feel strongly that it is more important to tell the story imperfectly rather than not tell it at all. But she chose to not tell it at all. Mm. At some point, she is... Was she characterized as having borderline personality disorder? Was she diagnosed? Like, w when did that term enter the conversation in your life? 
So I found out that she had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder in my early 20s. Okay. I had known that she had anxiety, I'd known she had depression, and I knew she had severe agoraphobia because by the time I was 13 or 14, she rarely left our apartment and actually rarely left her bedroom. But I did not know about, I didn't know anything at all about borderline. It was a totally unfamiliar term. Okay. And like, how did that present in her based on your knowledge of it now? Like, what did having borderline personality disorder mean in her life and in your life together? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so borderline personality disorder is a, a cluster B disorder. It is um, sort of adjacent to narcissistic personality disorder, which maybe some listeners might be more familiar with. And it is largely characterized by a very extreme fear of abandonment. So it, it can be passed down parent to child, usually mother to daughter. And I, I now know that I think she had a fairly traumatic childhood as well, in which she and her mother were abandoned by her biological father. And so she was just unable to abide any boundary between herself and me. And so I was not allowed to close my door. If I, if she felt I was being too private from her, she would take it off the hinges. When I misbehaved, she would threaten to have me followed in the street by people. When I was 15, she caught me making out with a boyfriend and had my teachers sign me into my classes to ensure I was going. She just was not able to separate from me in any way at all. And I kind of lived... I'm thinking of like an alien situation where the the big gloop monster just like surrounds you and, yeah. and pulls you in. But <laughs> I was just sort of subsumed by her. I, I I'm still working on processing the I will have you followed by people yeah. idea. Um, huh? Like like <laughs> is, how how does that work in terms of a threat or is that a protective thing? Like what's, what's the psychology behind that one as, as far as you can tell? Well, it seemed to be a way of exerting power to say, you can't do anything I disapprove of because I will have you follow it and I will know. Mm. But yet you're a person who grows up and uh, goes to college and begins uh, working in, in the city. And, and by the way, humans work, you have to separate from her. What, what, what does that turn into in terms of <laughs> her behavior and her attachments? Well, so she continued roughly on the same path. Um, you know, this was before cell phones, if you can imagine such a thing. And so she would, you know, demand the number of wherever I was traveling or going, which I often did not give her. And there was actually a sort of pivotal moment in my life a few years ago. This is not in the book because it hadn't happened yet. When I found a number of cassette tapes in her stuff that she had taped of her therapy when oh. she was seeing a therapist. And I had this big ethical dilemma, should I listen to them? And on the one hand, that seemed very clearly morally wrong to me. I would be furious if someone did it to me. But on the other hand, she had kept so many things about me secret that maybe there was something on there that was that I, that I could know something about my father, something about her life, something about me that I hadn't known. And so despite my misgivings, I listened to them. And it was really validating because she told all these stories about... You know, for example, in my early 20s, I went on vacation at one point, and she had friends find out the name of the hotel and get pictures of it. And she called the front desk and asked them to check in on me and all these kinds of things. And from now from a distance of 20 years, I can see that definitely was not normal behavior for a parent of an adult. Yeah. So there was a lot of that going on. She, over the years, began to diminish in her capacity a little bit. 
And as time went on, I could see dementia starting to creep in. She had me a little bit later in life. So by the time I was in my 30s, she was in her 70s. And so for a while, it became difficult to characterize her behavior because I could never tell if it was the illness, the dementia, or just kind of being a garden variety jerk, right? I didn't, I didn't know what to what to attribute what was right. happening. Right. How did that affect your relationships? You know, if the only model you have of, of forming a close bond is with this unsteady person, you know, as, as you coupled up with people, as you formed close attachments, how did that affect it? I mean, I just tried, as we all do, I think in relationships or as parents, I tried to do the opposite thing, right? Which has its own pitfalls, of course. But I always tried to be the girlfriend who was not particularly overbearing and the one who was like, yes, go on vacation without me, go go do your thing, et cetera, uh, which, you know, is, is sometimes fine and was sometimes less fine. Were you feeling it though? Like, like were you that chill or were you suppressing a need to clutch onto that person for dear life. <laughs> well, I, w- I was shying away from any feelings of clutching because my fear was always that, you know, a- again, this passes down through the generations. I was afraid that I would start showing some symptoms of borderline, which I have luckily not so far, but I would, I would see any, any desire to cling on in myself as being potentially dangerous and kind of shy away from it. Yeah. In your book, in Never Simple, which which I enjoyed for the illuminate, it's not always pleasant, but I enjoyed the book <laughs> for its illuminating qualities. There's a lot of piecing together who your father was and forming a, a portrait of who he was. How driven were you to figure that out? How how driven were you as an adult to kind of solve this mystery that would complement what you already knew and were dealing with with your mom? I was enormously driven by it. You know, it was, it was something I always felt a little sheepish about, I guess. It felt spoiled or self-interested to be so concerned about the identity of someone I had never met. You know, it's and I had friends whose parents had died when they were children, and that felt like something it was reasonable to grieve. You had had an actual loss. But what I had was an absence, right? I, I had this guy who just wasn't there, who was a father-shaped hole, and but it but it mattered to me. I wanted desperately, desperately to know who he was. And so the you know the first real clue I got was this conversation when I was eighteen, when my mother told me his real name. And so I did a little bit of searching on my own. But this was you know he died in in the seventies, very young. He was twenty eight years old. And so there just wasn't really a track of him, right? There's not there's not a lot of record of people that age at that time. And so it wasn't until I was with my first girlfriend when I was in my early 20s, and her family heard the story and became horrified on my uh, account. And so they hired a private investigator who, you know, after these years of me not knowing what was going on, it turns out that if you throw a little money at a situation, yeah. you know, within Some a day... Some doors open up. So quite a few. Within a day, he knew who my father was, who his parents were. His, his father, my grandfather, turned out to be a, a fairly famous entertainer. And that I had an aunt alive living in New York City, living in a building where one of my best friends lived and I had visited many times as a child. And that just completely blew the top of my head off. And there's some connecting or I would say more getting in touch with some relatives of your birth father who, you know, don't exactly welcome you in and, and bake a pie. And uh, <laughs> there's some instability and there's some rejection that, that came in that process too. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so I, I called my aunt, um, who had luckily been been warned of the conversation. They, remember, didn't know my mother existed, and so they certainly didn't know that I existed. So there was, you know, suddenly this adult niece sort of hoving out of the distance, fully formed, which was a surprise for everyone. And my aunt was perfectly nice in our very brief conversation, but she made it clear that she and her brother had not gotten along. She didn't say why, just that they were not close. And she didn't, she was not very forthcoming with stories. And so, you know, we, we hung up and I just kind of, I, I didn't entirely know what to do next. I had asked her for pictures of him because I'd never seen a picture. And, you know, every day I would run home to the mailbox and, and she didn't send them. But a year and a half passed and I was finally desperate enough to write to her again. And it was a, a very embarrassing letter that I'm glad I don't still have a copy of because I really was very sad at the time. But she did ultimately send me pictures of him. And because he had died so young, the pictures were of about the age I was at the time. And it was it was really a stunning moment because I did not look at all like my mother. And seeing those pictures made me understand why. Because we we looked like the male and female version of each other. And that was the first time I'd ever seen anyone I looked like. And that was a really startling moment. Beyond startling, I'm sure. Like, like what did that do to your idea of who you were? It, it filled in a giant a giant space and more more than makes sense really I don't know why that was so satisfying for me I still knew almost nothing about him but knowing his physical form was really helpful it also happened I, I think there were Christmas photos in the in the pictures he is holding my, my cousin a, a young child and the young child also looked kind of like me and so I could sort of port myself into that very happy familial picture and sort of pretend that that this had been me. Hmm. Yeah, as, as you say, as you as you go through adulthood and you eventually marry and have kids and leave New York, you form an identity outside outside of your your mother. What did how conscious were you of not turning into her or borrowing things from her from who she was that you could admire? Like was it a process of kind of assembling a personhood, an adulthood in response to her? Uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of that. And there were there were things that I, I tried to emulate about her. I mean, my mother had many amazing qualities. She was brilliant. She was very funny and very charming. Uh, very charming and I think, a way that people with BPD often are, because it is a way of gathering people to you and keeping them there. So certainly I, I tried to be all of those things. In some ways, the severity of her situation made it easy not to be like her because being in any relationship was a step forward. Staying employed was a step forward. Leaving my apartment regularly was more than she could do. And so it, there was not much fear of confusing myself with her there because her life was so constrained and so small. Just ahead, how exactly do a mother and daughter get by in Manhattan on seemingly no income? Back with Liz Shire, author of Never Simple. It's a memoir about Liz's life with her mother. How did she live all those years without 
a job in an apartment in New York <laughs> that she didn't move? Like, what were the practic? What yeah. was the truth about the practicalities? Boy, that is the sixty-four thousand dollars question. I still do not entirely know. So later in life, I discovered that she had gotten a um, a settlement from the law firm she had worked for when they fired her, and so I think she probably lived on that for a while. We lived in a rent-stabilized apartment, and for many years, she would uh, rent out my room when I was at summer camp. She would rent out the extra bedroom to international students. And when I went to college, she rented out both other bedrooms. And so those two people paying rent could cover the lease. Because she was completely impoverished, she qualified for Medicaid. She qualified for food stamps. And so she was able to, I think, sort of patch it together there. Okay. She had the wherewithal to to kind of coordinate the, uh, a, a business enterprise. When it counted, she could uh, she could step up. Yep. Yeah. Wait, so there were two bedrooms? I thought you said it was a one-bedroom apartment. Oh, sorry. So we moved when I was about six or seven to the Upper oh, West okay. Side. Okay. Uh, she sold the co-op that we lived in and moved to a rental. Okay. As somebody who has given a lot of thought and had a lot of experience in this idea of what what we inherit from our parents – what do you think is – what's your stance on what's inevitable that we get from our parents? I mean, there's those TV commercials of people who are turning into their parents. <laughs> you know, like what is changeable and what's inevitable in your mind? God, that is such a good question, and I would sell a million psychology books if I, <laughs> if I knew the real answer. Um, yeah. I, I do think we always parent in reaction to our own childhoods, whether – actively or passively, or and maybe the better way to say is positively or negatively. If we're saying, this was good about my childhood, I want to do this, or this was terrible, I want to shy away from it. Um, and so I think what I struggle with, and, and again, my children are very young, so this has not been too much of an issue so far. I struggle with giving them so much space that they feel unloved, because I still hear in my head my mother saying, I'm going to have you tracked in the streets, right? I still hear her taking the hinges off my door. So my goal as a parent is to give my kids space to be people, right? For, for me not to be their story, for me not to be the most important thing to them. And I, I fear going too far in that direction in the sense that they may think, they may think of me as entirely distant. It, it seems, I mean, as you describe your mom's dealing with borderline personality disorder and mentioning that it's related to narcissism, it seems really close. I mean, was she concerned about you in a in a motherly way that is like, you know, I don't want you to get hurt, I want you to have a good life? Or was it was her concern based on how it reflected and affected her? No, there there was not any of that. She was extremely loving and nothing in the world mattered to her except for me. And so in many ways, like the the core of that is what we think of as perfect American motherhood, right? Doing everything for your kids, making sure they have a wonderful life. All of those things were true. And this all came from a very loving and caring place. It was just blown to this absurd overextension that made it damaging. Yeah. I mean, did you grow up then? I'm, I'm just very interested in, in how we we learn who we are from our parents. Like they, they share the information. I mean, sometimes in earth shattering moments when you're 18, but they, they share information with you on who you are. Did you grow up thinking 
I'm the only thing that matters, you know, I, <laughs> in relationships yeah, and like, you know, romantic relationships, you know, you better adore me all the time because that's who I am. That's who I've been taught to be. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> We'd have to get my husband in here, but uh-huh. uh, I, I don't think so. I, I was lucky enough to marry somebody who loves me a lot and thinks of me as better than I am. But I, I, I think it's a normal level of thinking the person you love is better than they are. But you, despite what how she would demonstrate who you are, you didn't uh, necessarily hold that same opinion. No, I mean I was uh, I was pretty depressed as a young person, and I was pretty sure that I was the worst person who ever walked the face of the earth because you know young people are are histrionic in their self hatred in that way. Yeah, well, but you also had a genetic history of depression. True. From True. from your father. As you kind of unfolded who you were in, in learning about who your father was and, and getting these details, making these connections, how did your mental health hold up? Because, again, you're, you're defining yourself in the process. I mean, as, as I got further away from that situation, it got better, I would say, because I was able to, to put a physical and emotional barrier between myself and my mother. And when she was in, you know, she did not have bipolar disorder, but she had manic phases that, that felt similar. And so there were times when she would call me 10 or 15 times a day. But, you know, technology became better and I had voicemail and I could send her voicemails to text transcripts so I didn't have to engage with them all the time. The complicating factor was there was that her uh, her finances were running low and very soon after college I started paying a lot of her bills and ultimately portions of her rent I think that was when it became a little bit harder to draw that dividing line. Because, you know, my friends were very, who came from more, less chaotic families, shall we say, always said, well, why don't you just pick up the phone? Why are you involved with her? This is very codependent. And probably it was very codependent. I'm, I'm sure that's true. But she also was literally dependent on me in that, you know, the year that I finally stopped paying for a lot of her bills because I had lost my job and, and run into some issues there she stopped paying her rent and ended up in a homeless shelter. So it was, while it was codependent, it was also based in a reality that she was a dependent person. Yeah, well, I wanted to, to ask about that. And I, and let's just jump in there now, because eventually the the system of however she was supporting herself breaks down later in life, and she kind of breaks down a little bit. Walk us through how she lost her home. Yeah, so uh, so I found out about this one day after we had uh, just moved to DC for my husband's job and we had my kids in very quick proximity because we're dumb and so i had i was 7 months pregnant with my wait no you're not <laughs> <laughs> uh, continue so, <laughs> thank you <laughs> uh, i was 7 months pregnant with my second and had the first like strapped to me in one of those wraps with like a baby shaped sweat stain on me because it's DC in the summer which is like taking wet duvet yeah. out of the washing machine and just sitting under it. And I get a call and it's Adult Protective Services in New York asking me why I haven't shown up to court. Now, there are a lot of confusing nouns in that sentence, right? Yeah. I didn't know why Adult Protective Services was calling me. I didn't know what kind of court they were talking about or why I should have been there. And so it turned out that when she had called me about a year before while this uh, uh, this sort of drama was happening with my job, and I had said, I, I can't help you this month. She had stopped paying her rent that month, and she never paid rent again after that. 
I didn't know any of that was happening. I was the co-signer on her lease. And so the landlord obviously filed for eviction. I don't blame them for that. But they were sending the letters about this. You know, they were nailing, it's called nailing and mailing to the, you know, they drop it under the door and also in the, in the U.S. mail. But to the apartment I didn't live in, in a city I didn't live in. So I had no idea what was happening. So what would happen is they would go to housing court. She would show up or not show up. She had a court-appointed lawyer. And the judge would say, and where is the lawyer for the other Ms. Shire? And she would sit there silently. And, you know, I, I had forgiven her a lot of things over the years, but that was one of the moments that I that I could not forgive because that was such a practical that that was such a practical moment when she caused some real damage to my family, my very young family as a result. Mm, yeah. So the eviction proceedings obviously continue even in a rent controlled apartment in New York you can you can get evicted if you never pay you can but in her case it took 3 years to the month she wow. did not pay rent for 3 full years and what would happen is you know she the landlord would would get an order of eviction she would go to housing court with it she would take her oxygen tent with her i'm sorry she would take her her oxygen tank with her you know on the little rolly pole and she would show up in housing court and the judge would look at this elderly woman in a mumu with a uh, what do you call the thing you put in your nose? The uh, yeah, you know, uh, who's who's dependent on oxygen and used a walker to walk, and put an emergency stay on it, and that happened I think a dozen times over the course of three years. Did she need the oxygen and the walker, or was that a performative thing? No, she did. She had she had difficulty walking, and she had smoked six packs a day for forty years. Jeez, sixty years by that point, actually. That's a lot of cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. So then what happens? So finally, finally, the order of eviction was granted. She had a, a bedside hearing where the, the judge actually came to her apartment with the court evaluator and some other people. And she just kept yelling at him, you people need to leave me alone. I have a month's rent in cash. None of this is a problem. Just go away and, and leave me. And I think that was the moment that it became clear to me that it was not her being a garden variety jerk or part of her illness that she really was not able to understand that she owed them. I mean, at that point she owed six figures in rent. Right. And she just didn't understand that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, as far as you can tell what, what was causing the decline at that point? I mean, I, I, with mental, with mental illness, I, I often say like, you know, you can zero in on a diagnosis if that's helpful, but, but people are vast complicated beings. What was causing that decline at that point in her life? You know, that's a, that is a really good question. And, and you are exactly right that we are very complicated beings and we have bodies as well as minds and hers was failing her. You know, she was, she was coming up on her 80th birthday at that point. And so I, I think she was, you know, her family is very short lived. Her mother died at 44. And so she, you know, she had always assumed she would die young. And I think that's part of the reason she never worried about the money is that she never thought she would need any, um, yeah. but she, you know, her life just kept spinning out long before the the time she expected it to. So there she is, you know, suffering with dementia, and the so the marshals come and they drill through the door, and she and her aide packed a small suitcase and went off to an intake shelter in the Bronx. And you're in D.C. during all this. I am. And you know, it's I I, I keep getting back to this idea of of attachment and dependency and everything like 
like this is happening to her. This isn't happening to you, but I'm sure you're dealing with feelings of, of guilt, feelings of just what are the feelings that you're going through in this and, and how are you kind of protecting and even defining yourself? Well, you know, I'm a New York Jew, so my primary mode is guilt, and I was sort of sure. running on that mostly. Um, but, but yes, there was there was a lot of guilt, and I spent a lot of time then and now thinking about what we owe to the people who are dependent on us, even if they have not been the kinds of parents that we would have liked, perhaps, right? And so I am now at the age, I'm, I'm 43, only now are my friend's parents starting to get sick, starting to get older, right? Because my mother had me a little later. And so it was it was never clear to me how much of myself it was reasonable to shed or to endanger to care for her. And the, that became clearer when I had kids because I did not ever intend to have children. I'm not particularly a kid person. I wasn't interested in them. But my husband really wanted children. And so we, we decided to give it a try when we got married. And I honestly assumed I was old enough that it wouldn't happen and see earlier comment and read two kids in very quick succession so that turned out to be wrong. But I was able to do for them what I was not able to do for myself, which was to protect them. My mother met my daughter once when she was a few months old, and she never met my son. Because it was clear, even in that one meeting when Rachel was four months old, that my mother's violence was not tamped down sufficiently to spend time around a kid. And so I, I kind of had this blinding realization of, if I can protect my children from her, why can't I protect me? Why can't I? step aside. And so, you know, I, I wrestled with that for those years. I, I didn't then and don't now have a good answer for what we owe people who need us when there is no one else. Yeah. And your mother, we speak of her in the past tense. She did pass away. How did you, how did you get that news? What form did that news come in? And what was happening with you psychologically when all that went down? Yeah, so she, uh, as I mentioned, she went to an intake shelter where you're supposed to only be able to spend two weeks, and she argued her way into five. This would not surprise anyone who knew her. <laughs> and she finally, you know, m my husband and I had, had spent those, those years previous trying to get her into affordable housing of some kind. And this is a challenge for anyone, right? Elder care, as we know, is a an expensive nightmare for, for most families. But it is even harder when the person in question won't go. And so we would find her these sort of magical unicorn beds at Medicaid or Social Security subsidized facilities, you know, with 24-hour care and all of that. And she wouldn't go. She wouldn't leave her apartment, I think, in part because of her agoraphobia and partly because she just didn't really believe that it was happening. But I think that changed when she was in the shelter and the reality of the situation became clear. And so she went from there to an assisted living facilities with the unbelievably wonderful name of Mermaid Banner. <laughs> and if I ever get to write a TV show, I'm going to call it that because that is just yeah. extraordinary. It's in Coney Island. <laughs> of course it is. Of course right. it is. Right. Oh my gosh. And so she went there and it, it seemed like things were getting better, right? Because I think she got her medication back. She got her dentures back. So she sounded not so mushy anymore. She, her voice sounded normal again. And I thought, okay, maybe this, is a, maybe this is the thing that we couldn't do over all those years. Maybe now she's cared for. And then two weeks later, I got a call from the social worker there saying, your mother is missing. And I was like, she's almost 80. She uses a walker. She coughs like a can of Brillo pads rolling downhill. What do you mean she's missing? <laughs> she can't have gone far. 
She can't have gone far. Well, it turns out she called an ambulance to take her to a Manhattan hospital, which is kind of amazing because if you know New York geography, there's like six hospitals in between Coney Island and the Upper West Side. But she managed to get back to her beloved Manhattan and she checked herself into the rheumatology ward and then she refused to let anyone examine her for a week. And anytime a doctor came near her, she would scream that it was assault and they would back off. So every day I talked to a round of like the resident on duty, the social worker, whoever it was, and they all sound completely baffled by the situation. And so one day I'm, I'm coming home from work with a bag of groceries and the doctor says, does your mother have a DNR? And I said, she does. And she said, okay, good, because we have to intubate her in the next two minutes unless you tell me not to. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't think I understand. I, I thought this was just a paperwork call. Are, are you saying she's dying right now? And the, the doctor said, yes, she is dying right now. And her voice was trembling. And I realized that you probably don't get a lot of deaths in the rheumatology floor. Yeah. I really feel for this poor doctor. But, but in any case, I, you know, my mother, as I mentioned, had come from a notoriously short-lived family and had not expected nor wanted to live as long as she did. And she she was a religious woman. She she prayed for death basically every day of her life. And I thought, if I tell them to bring her back, she will find a way to get out of that bed and come kill me dead. And so I said, no, she would not want that. Let her go. And they put me on speakerphone. And so I just heard the very logistical sounds of someone dying for six or seven minutes while machines beeped and clipboards were put down and nurses' voices talked in the background. And then she was gone. And then she was gone, and I uh, ended the call, and I had been listening to a podcast when the doctor called, so I went from sound of the doctor giving me her condolences to Ira Glass's voice on This American Life. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, and this is when our program does not continue. Uh, (laughs) Yes, well said. Well said. Oh my gosh. It It was very funny. Is funny the right word? A lot of this was funny. Well, it's it's all very human, so it it becomes funny. I mean, that's sort of the foundation of a lot of what we do on our show. Is like, yeah, it's you know, it, it can be funny because it can be so absurd, but yet yeah. real. Mm-hmm. How do you tell your kids about their grandmother? <sighs> Boy, uh, I'm sorry to say that is a future tense situation. I haven't really. Um, she died when they were two and three, which I will say I think probably is too young to explain any of those issues. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd actually always wondered why they never asked me about my parents. My, they're very close to my in-laws. They have great-grandparents. They love them. But they never asked me about mine. And that mystery was finally solved actually a couple of months ago when we figured out that it was because they believed their father and I to be brother and sister. Oh, <laughs> and okay. therefore their grandparents are both of our parents. I have I've had to explain to them that my father is dead and they do not understand death really yet. So they just understand they're not there. And I wrestle with that because I don't want to upset them or you know say something too difficult for a brain that's that young to understand, but I also do not want to be the secret keeper. Like that is that is the worst thing for me to repeat that legacy from my mother. Yeah. I don't know if this is a question you can even answer, but I feel like it, it kind of closes that loop. Like I've asked how you 
tell your kids who their grandmother was. How do you tell yourself who your mother was? <laughs> yeah, God, that's a great question. You know, in some ways, I'm finding her a lot easier to love now because life with my mother could be like one long showing of the Goonies. There was always a booby trap somewhere, right? There was always a lawyer who might be calling or the police when she ran afoul of them or a social worker. But now there may be more secrets coming up from her past, but there was there's a line in the sand. The moment of her death is the moment where she can't create any more chaos. So I can now see her, you know, I, I don't brace when the phone rings anymore. So I can now see her as this, person who this very funny very loving very brilliant person who loved me so much and was just really bad at it and you know the what i think about her is that uh you know she really did the best she could she 100 percent did the best she could it's just that her best was not good yeah she did the best she could with the tools that she had at the time she had them right which were very few. Yeah, yeah. Liz Shire, thank you so much. John Mo, thank you so much for having me. Having a child with a mental illness is not easy. Neither is dealing with a spouse who develops one. But it might be easier in those situations to detect that mental illness than it is for a kid who grows up with a mentally ill parent to detect that parent's illness. Whatever you grow up in, that's your definition of normal for years and years. So to really understand what's going on in that situation when the parent has a mental illness, you kind of have to deconstruct your whole life. You kind of have to dismantle the whole thing and look at every component. That's something that a kid generally can't do. An adult can, might need some help, of course, some professional help, but it's worth doing. Figuring out as best you can what a parent was dealing with in the past, what obstacles they had in their way, I think it helps to understand them better, especially if they're gone. And it can help you to know how you were made and understand yourself as you go into the future, as well-equipped as possible. Laura House is here after the break. Carrie, is it? Oh, yes. Hi, I'm Carrie. I am Psychic Ross, and I will be reading you this evening. Oh, interesting. Well, okay. I co-host a podcast. It's called Ono, Ross, and Carrie. Yes, I'm sensing that. The spirits are telling me it is a show about Well, it's about like fringe science and spirituality and claims of the paranormal. Oh, you knew that. You do research online. But more importantly, like we do in-person investigations. In-person investigate as well. Oh, my God. That's amazing. See? Me and my friend. This is so weird. My friend Ross. Same name as you. Weird. He and I just go and try them all out. And actually, we've gone to a number of psychics. And to be honest with you, it's a lot like this. It's called Ono Ross and Carrie. They can find it at MaximumFun.org. I could have told you that. Schmanners. Noun. Definition. Rules of etiquette designed not to judge others, but rather to guide ourselves through everyday social situations. 
Hello, Internet. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. Every week on Schmanners, we take a look at a topic that has to do with society or manners. We talk about the history of it. We take a look at how it applies to everyday life. And we take some of your questions. And sometimes we do a biography about a really cool person that had an impact on how we view etiquette. So join us every Friday and listen to Schmanners on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. Manners, Schmanners. Get it? Well, you know, I, I, I don't know if everybody knows about this, but the world is full of things that can agitate one. What? Seemingly, I know, I know. <laughs> I just heard about this. When did that start? I, it's, it's a new development. <laughs> Our friend Laura House is here to, to maybe guide us through at least a, a pit stop, at least a little respite, a little breather, uh, quite literally, in the form of a meditation moment. Hi, Laura. Hi. Oh, I'm going to need this one. <laughs> this is going to be yeah, great. Yeah, let's, let's pull the car over from life for a second. <laughs> and if you're driving, you need to literally do that. Yeah, literally. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> Please. It's easy. We just get comfortable as step one. Close your eyes. Ideally, you're sitting somewhere your back is supported. Settle in for a sec. And then you just notice your breath. You don't have to control it or try to do anything about it. You're just, however your breath is, you just notice. And you'll have thoughts and your mind will wander. And when you're aware your mind is wandering, you just notice your breath again and just let go. Go ahead and open your eyes. You did it. Do you time those gaps or do you just sort of, after all the meditation work you've done and teaching you've done, do you just get a feel for it? Do you, do you feel they're perfect? I, of course they're perfect. <laughs> but I can't imagine a meditation instructor has a stopwatch in their hand. <laughs> no, you, well, a lot of times you do. And it's funny. I know these, I just, I just make up. I just felt like, well, that felt like a little something. And I. I'd say you can open your eyes. Sometimes I have to remember, oh, this is a short thing. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a saying, since you brought up time, that I think is interesting, is that we were told, because the kind I learned, you meditate for 20 minutes, and it was, let the clock be your master. Mm. So there is something, I mean, just in meditation, not all the time, but there is something about, you know what, I'm going to do five minutes, and then just committing and yeah. letting whatever happen in that five minutes. Yeah, it's just, just sort of taking the responsibility off off your own shoulders here for a little bit. Yeah, but with this one, no, I'm not like a soccer coach off to the <laughs> side with it. Uh, go! Uh, oh, stop! A loud whistle to yeah. indicate that you're We're done. running sprints over here. <laughs> okay, my grandmother can meditate better than that. <laughs> Drop and give me enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> Laura House from the Tiny Victories podcast. Give that a listen. It's full of victories, and they don't even feel all that tiny. Sometimes they feel monumental, I think. Oh, yeah. She can be found also at laurahouse.com. Laura, thank you. Thank you.
Next time on Depression Mode, Dylan got some really nasty, cruel, awful comments about his work online. Like really personal, derogatory, horrible stuff, which is common on the internet. Less common? Calling those commenters up and interviewing them. I needed to convince myself that these people who were sending me these things were human. And so I would kind of fictionalize, like, I, I would essentially write fan fiction of these people, of their lives, using the, what they had available of their biographical data, and I would kind of weave a story between it. When I understood that they were human beings, they felt like people that I could reach rather than these, like, distant monsters who had hurt me. Dylan Marin from the book and podcast Conversations with People Who Hate Me. I hope people don't hate this show. If people support our show through a small donation, we can keep being here together. If not, we can't. If you donate, you make Depression Mode happen. We thank you. If you haven't donated, it's really easy. Find a level that works for you. Maximumfund.org slash join. Be sure to hit subscribe on Depression Mode. Do it now. Give us five stars. Write reviews. That really, really helps also. Helps more people find out about the show which gets more conversations going, which is what we want, which is why I do the show. Please know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, if you are in crisis, is free and available. Text the word HOME to 741741. You might want to go back to last week's show. There have been some privacy issues surrounding Crisis Text Line. Be a good idea to learn more about it. Please use our electric mail address, depressionmode at maximumfun.org. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your thoughts and comments and anything that you have in mind. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hello, Credits listeners. I was at a coffee shop the other day, and you could get 10 cents off your cup of coffee if you answer a trivia question. The question was, what is the capital of Alaska? The woman in front of me didn't know, and I said, it's Juno. So she told the barista Juno, and she got the discount. And she smiled and thanked me. And then I said, just remember, Juno, the capital of Alaska, that's a mnemonic device for you. And then she gave me a look that kind of said, okay, your help is appreciated. Please stop talking to me. Look, man, I just want to help folks and bring that coffee shop down 10 cents at a time. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason, maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer, maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing Hey, this is Steve, up in Portland, Maine Just a reminder that you are so much more loved than you realize. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture.
Artist owned, audience supported.